From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, so happy you could be tuned in here for this week's episode when I'm happy to welcome back to the program our very good friend from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Richard Hill. And we're going to be talking today about the risks of raw food diets for our pets. Now, uh, Dr. Hill, I'm, I'm so glad that you could be back with me. And, and today's episode is probably going to be of great interest to listeners, many of whom will have maybe even already made the decision to try a raw food diet for the pets. And and here's where I'll say off the bat, you know, if if I'm just coming to this without having any background information, I would think, well, how what's wrong with the raw food diet? Animals eat raw meat in the wild. They're sort of evolutionarily designed to eat it, right? What's wrong with it? Well, I'm really appreciative of the opportunity to talk to the audience about this topic because it's very important for their well-being and those and also the well-being of their pets and it's important that people who undertake feeding raw food to their pets understand the pros and cons um the the reason uh, raw food is not this is not representative of what animals eat in the wild is because in the wild they chase down individual animals which um, and then they eat the whole animal pretty much um, and so there are two major differences to what goes in to feeding animals um, in the pet animals one is that the food that that the raw food that goes into a pet pet's um, recipe is processed through um, a, a facility designed to put the animals to sleep and then process the food and cut it up into various um, joints, which are then consumed. Um, so. Whereas in the wild, the, the, the animals are exposed to relatively few of their kind around them, um, and the animal will not will eat the animal before it's without it being mixed up with a whole bunch of meat from other animals. And the second thing is that um, meat alone is not a complete and balanced diet, um, and so it's really important that anyone feeding a raw diet makes sure that it contains all the essential nutrients it needs. I think I've mentioned previously that um, that it's important that um, the innards of, a, of an animal are fed as well as the meat um, because a lot of the nutrients an animal needs come from the liver, the spleen, the lungs, and all those organs within the body. Um, they are actually classified on the label as byproducts, meat byproducts. And people think that sounds like it's a bad thing, but it's it's just a way of classifying the organs in in a carcass. And in order to eat a complete and balanced diet, you have to eat the meat and the organs. Um, so that, and the reality is, we're never going to mimic exactly what the animal eats in the wild. Even 
um, so that man pet food manufacturers want to pretend that we're eating moose or whatever, um, that, 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 that rather the dogs are eating moose. Um, but remember, cats, they, they actually, in the wild, they, they'll eat um, birds and mice. And um, I don't think anybody wants ground-up birds and mice in their pet food. They have to have something else. And so pet food manufacturers are basically trying to mimic what they eat in the wild, but using um, ingredients that are available for that purpose. Okay, there is a lot to discuss and unpack here. But even before we get into that, I wonder if there are any studies or any surveys that indicate about how many pets in this country are consuming a raw food diet versus a traditional sort of commercially available food diet. Um, I think there have been some surveys, and I'm not um, completely familiar with the numbers involved. Um, there, there is an increasing um, market for pet foods which are raw um, uh, because uh, there's a perceived as a, a need, and the pet food industry is trying to support that need, if you see what I mean. But I do not personally have. Um, good information on that. I would say that I still think the vast majority of dogs and cats in in the United States are fed commercial, cooked commercial food. But um, I think that there are some people who are philosophically enthusiastic that their animals do better on the raw food than they do on 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 on. on commercial cooked food, um, and the, the trouble is that there's no real objective data to support that statement. Uh, as far as yeah, I mean, that, and that is critical, what you just said, because it, it leads to sort of uh, the question that I would ha have, just, you know, as, some, as somebody who is coming to this with not a great deal of, of experience, my question is, what is what's prompting this? Is there some unmet need? Are animals who are being fed commercially available, complete and balanced pet foods that you one could buy at the supermarket, are they not getting the adequate nutrition that they need to be healthy? Well, I think this is partly an, an issue that I addressed, I think, in previous uh, conversations, that we need to focus on nutrients over ingredients. And so as the animal's concerned, is primarily what is it able to get sufficient of the essential and non-essential nutrients that it needs in its diet to maintain itself. Um, and as far as the current information is concerned, there are no um, nutrients which are not available in cooked foods um, that um, are present in raw foods. Um, there are some, we should probably talk a little bit about what happens when you cook food. Um, the first thing is that people think that it makes digestibility worse, but in fact, it makes digestibility of some ingredients better. Um, the most notable example would be any starch that's present in the diet, which becomes more digestible um, when it's cooked. And anybody who's tried to make white sauce or um, sort of a, a roux um, appreciates if you take some 
flour and you add it to water and you boil it, then the character, the, the flour starts off as being a powder and it turns into something more glutinous. And that's basically changed the character that starts to make it more digestible. If you keep on, if you overcook it, then it becomes a little, it becomes poorly digestible again. It becomes more like a glass-like physical structure. But um, the, the, the point is that modest, moderate cooking improves that. That's also true of protein. Moderate amounts makes it a little bit better. Um, and then too much cooking makes it worse. Um, there's actually a... a, a reaction called browning, which is the same uh, effect that happens on the outside of bread, for example. Um, and it provides some flavor, which is why people like cooked bread. The smell of cooked bread is fantastic. But um, it, too, much cooking, that, too much cooking can make protein a little less digestible. But the most commercial pet food is designed to have some cooking, but not too much cooking. So on the whole, it's it's though raw food might be a little bit more digestible than pet food. It's generally assumed that it's a little bit more digestible than pet food. The difference is relatively small. Yeah. Okay. But, sure. Go and and go ahead because I think you you had more. Yeah. The the other things that happen with cooking is that you do get um, some loss of B vitamins and some other vitamins. So uh, the pet food manufacturers add vitamins in excess so that after cooking there's enough co there's enough B vitamins and stuff left in there um, vitamin A is added um, there is an issue with um, people get excited about creatine um, that's one of the things in muscle that helps with muscle function um, and people get excited about that I would say the data at the moment says that dogs can make enough of it so you don't have to worry about it there may be a little question if you've got an exercising dog, but I, I, in our laboratory, we have some unpublished data which suggests that there's no effect. Um, others have suggested there might be an effect, but I would have said the reality is that if creatine was proved to be a problem, it would be added to the diet. And that's true of anything else that would be destroyed in cooking. You know, a classic example is taurine in cat food. Um, we know that cooking reduces the availability of taurine in cat food. So you, when that was discovered, um, pet food manufacturers just put extra taurine in so that after cooking, there's enough left in it. So does that make sense? It does. It does. I mean, and when I think about this, you know, when I think about, you know, as being somebody who has a pet, thinking about the food that I feed my pet, I, I personally haven't found it to be lacking in anything. Um, is this is this something that is primarily psychological on the part of people? I mean, that you you don't like the idea of, you know, giving your animal something that I don't know comes from a bag or or, or comes from a can or something, and you feel like you are doing something that is better for your animal. Well, there is a veterinarian who actually advocated for so-called so bones and raw food diets to, on the justification that it better mimicked the wild diet. And the idea, it's a BARF, BARF diet. And, um, Which is a lovely acronym. <laughs> and he advocated for that. Um, and the, But he never actually showed that there was a benefit. Um, I think there is 
talking to a lot of clients, because that's my business about nutrition, if you see what I mean, there is some suggestion. They often talk about an improvement in coat quality or a, a general feeling that the animals are doing better. Um, and I suspect that it is due to an effect of fat, um, because by and large, meat is fatty. Um, and so everybody thinks they're feeding protein, but in fact, they're feeding protein and a lot of fat. Um, and the most dry dog food is relatively low in fat. Um, so proportionally, if you mix a, if, if you feed a, a meat-based diet or you mix meat, raw food, meat, raw meat, with um, a dry food, the effect is to often increase the protein, increase the fat content of the diet. And I think it's actually the protein, the fat content that makes the biggest difference to the goat because we have good data that suggests that changing the fat content of the diet may affect the quality of the coat. Uh -huh. So I, I think that's probably the effect. And I will tell you that we, again, we have some unpublished data in greyhounds um, that we tried to mimic this. Um, we were really scared about the effect of infectious disease on our, greyhound, our research greyhounds. So we actually irradiated the meat before we gave it. Um, that shouldn't have changed the chemical com composition. Its job is to just kill off any resident bacteria in the meat. And then we looked at the effect of adding meat to a dry diet on the performance of the greyhounds on the track. And they did run a bit faster when they were fed um, the meat, when the meat was added to the um, dry diet, which is what many greyhound racing owners do, um, which was why we wanted to test it. But when we did that, that we had the, when we did a study which is reported where we added, uh, increased the fat and protein, to dry diet. So we gave one diet which was a little bit more higher in fat and protein than another one. Again, the one with a little bit more fat and protein actually made them run faster. So we can mimic the same result um, used using dry diets that we can see with, with the adding meat to, to dry diets. And there was one consequence that everybody should be aware of um, in that the Greyhounds, which were very good at regulating their food intake when they were just on a dry diet, um, uh, they lost it as soon as they got the meat in the diet. And we ended up having to to make sure the study was fair and to make sure both groups of dogs got the same calories. We actually had to limit access to food in the ones receiving the 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 um, the meat to stop them getting fat. So owners of pets that are feeding meat to their pets need to be careful about the effect it has on, on their body condition because uh, getting obese just like for you and me is, is not a good thing for their pets. Well, this is fascinating. Uh, we know that fat tastes good, right? Is that primarily what was at play here, that the animals that were receiving this meat that had extra fat from what they might normally have received in just dry kibble alone were eating more just because the food they were getting tasted better than what they were used to? 
It's partly that. Uh, I would normally say that it might be that, that, that there's more calories there and they're not very good at spotting it. But of course, in a wet food, we were giving a wet food in the form of meat to the dry kibble. So it couldn't be volume that was determining it. So it must be they just they just fancied the taste of it. Yes. Mm. Um, and so and all across all across animal kingdom, the animal kingdom is not very good when it's been tested at judging how much it should eat. There there are some studies where they're given a choice of things and they do work it out, if you see what I mean, how best to consume the calories they need from fat and protein and things like that. But when it's done, it's really to the best for reproduction. It's not necessarily the best for um, shape or longevity, if you see what I mean. You know, if they, they can eat enough to reproduce and get their genes marketed and sent, sent all around the world, then that's what they're mainly interested. They don't care afterwards whether they live or die. They they need to get their genes out. Wow. Dr. Hill, you, you really stumbled on something that I, it changes completely my, my conception uh, about animals and, and pets all together. That's fascinating. And I doubt many people listening to this program will have thought about it that way. Just the, the goals uh, that nature has kind of set out for animals don't necessarily involve living to be 12 or 15 years old. Uh, really, it's a bit more basic than that. Well, I love, I love, I learned something every day. And we had a, um, a, young resident present something about octopuses the other day and um i just i learned from when i by looking things up because i was fascinated by it that they only they they reproduce once and then they die which is probably the it, they don't live very long they live a year or two and then they die and as soon as they reproduce they die <laughs> Yeah. And so that's a classic example where I don't worry but whether I, whether I live as long as I, I reproduce a lot. <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, I tell you what, this is where we're going to take our first break. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live on WUFTFM. My name is Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Richard Hill. And we're talking today about the risks of raw food diets, and we'll be back with more on Animal Airwaves Live right after this. Hi, welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Richard Hill, and we're talking today about the risks of raw food diets. And we certainly started off, uh, Dr. Hill, with a discussion about a lot of stuff with a lot of important detail, but I wonder if we could kind of just reverse a little bit here and for folks who are just kind of joining the show right now. And as we talk about animals and the way that we feed them. Of course, many people and most people probably listen to this program right now who have pets, dogs or cats, primarily what we're talking about, will be very familiar with the kind of pet food that is commercially available. This could be either in a can or this could be in a pouch maybe even, or it could be in some sort of bag if it's like what we call like a dry kibble kind of thing for dogs or cats. Um, And this is 
this is food that is generally created by commercial operations that have, from what I've learned on this program over the years, given a great deal of thought and taken a lot of effort to ensure that the food that they're selling and marketing is complete and balanced nutrition for these pets. Now, you know, whether one brand tastes better than another, I don't know. I'll leave it for for pets to decide. But in order to bring this food to the market, they have to have done some kind of studies or some kind of um, analysis to determine that this food meets the nutritional requirements of pets. Is that correct? Yes. And the, the thing to do is to look on the label for it. It should say it's complete and balanced. If it says on the label that it's complete and balanced, it contains all the vitamins and minerals and essential nutrients, protein, fat that the animal needs if it's eaten in reasonable quantities. Right. So is barring a pet that might need some sort of therapeutic food for a different reason, one could conceivably feed that food to a pet and the pet will have all the nutrition it needs to otherwise uh, live a satisfactory life nutrition-wise, right? Absolutely. And if, if the clients, just to follow on from what I just talked about, if the clients, the patients, owners of a pet want their coat, the animal's coat to feel, look a little bit better, the best way of increasing the fat and protein content is to give a canned food. It's a bit more expensive for calorie, and so and it's harder to carry home from the store. But it, it's it's it contain, they usually contain more protein and fat. So that will have the similar effect with a cooked food that that adding raw meat would do to or raw raw food to the diet would do. Uh, and here's where we should add that when changing up a pet's food, kind of uh, do it a little bit more gradually. Don't just oh, of switch. Course, yes, of course, yes. Switch and day one. From a, from a dry food to a, a canned food. Just briefly, can you explain why that's necessary to, to kind of... Well, it's, it's, there's two reasons. Um, one is because the small intestine takes a little while to adjust to the new arrangement because it's got to up, change the enzymes slightly in the amounts and things like that and change the shape, you know, the, the transporters and stuff like that. So it's going to change that a little bit. Um, but the other reason is because the colon, uh, the bacteria in the colon have to adjust. And uh, as we probably all know now, the, the bacteria in the colon are very important to our general well-being. And so th the same is true for pets. And so it takes about a month for the, the bacteria in the colon to adjust. So it's usually easier to go from a high-fiber food to a low-fiber food um, because that's mainly the small intestine that needs to adjust, and that takes only about three or four days. But going the, from a low-fiber to a high-fiber food takes a month. Okay. So then commercially available diets are complete and balanced. What is – is there something incomplete and unbalanced – about what animals, wild animals specifically, might be consuming. No, the wild animals consume they, they because they're consuming whole animals. They're usually consuming a balanced diet. If you eat whole animals, like you're a snake or something like that, you eat a whole animal, then you're usually eating a completely balanced diet. And that's you know, if you're a a, a cat, you're eating. 
you eat the whole animal. The, the reason they eat the brains is because that contains a lot of taurine. And so they, they're eating a complete and balanced diet. Um, I dare say if you're in a bad environment where you can't get everything you need, you might be a little off, if you see what I mean. Um, but really, the the issue, the big difference that we should probably get back to, though, between and the, regarding the risks are um, the the infectious diseases risks. The difference between I'm a wild animal and I I'm eating a wild diet versus I'm a domestic animal and I'm eating a a, a, a raw diet created by um, even if it's complete and balanced. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I mean, these uh, wild animals, right? They live in the wild, and what, we, what do we know about living in the wild? Life is nasty, brutus, and short. So um, things they it might seem to be the way of nature, but it's also important to remember that you know animals in the wild don't live as long as our pets do, and that could be for a variety of reasons. But um, yeah, I don't know. If I were my cat, I wouldn't trade it for being a, a, her life for being a wild cat. Well, it's, yeah, and I think that that's true, but there is a, a really big difference between the infectious disease risk that the, that the wild animals have versus the infectious disease risk that the pets have. There's also a concern with broken teeth um, in the wild um, because they chew on bones and things like that, and that can be a limiting factor as well. Um, and the recommendation for the FDA is to grind up the bones um, to avoid any risks from the bones if you're using a raw diet. Um, and I think that's probably a wise thing to do. The, the bones are important to give calcium in the diet, but, but um, the danger is that if you, you can get broken teeth and you can also um, get um, uh, so, some of the, the vertebrae some of the the spinal bones can get stuck in, and lodged in the in the esophagus, and that can be it's very dangerous and can lead to strictures and damage the esophagus. And we regularly at the University of Florida have to remove um, bones from esophagus when they've got stuck in the esophagus. That's the tube between the mouth and the stomach, and uh, it's one of the common procedures we do in the middle of the night because if that bone lodges for too long um, then it can cause damage, so much damage to the the esophagus that it, it gets fibrous and scar tissue and it strictures and then um, food can't go down the esophagus very easily and they say sometimes it strictures down to a pinpoint and we have to stretch it and that's um, uh, that can involve many visits to the veterinarian to get the, the strictures stretched um, it's one and so if you are feeding um, chicken necks or something like that to your dog and it starts to regurgitate food. It's a genuine emergency. You have to come to the vets right away. Oh. See here, Dr. Hill, is, is, I mean, maybe I'm just a different kind of person, I guess. But, you know, I already have found that uh, canned cat food is is a bit unappetizing to me as it is. I can't imagine wanting to go through the process of grinding up raw food, including the bones, to give to my pet. I, that just doesn't seem like a, a task that I want to do at home. Uh, but I, I guess other people are up to it. I, you know, well, more, yeah. 
one of the things that um, the pet food companies, there are some pet food companies making raw foods which are balanced and they do the grinding for the for the for the owners. So, but the problem is that um, all raw owners should be aware that all raw food is likely to be contaminated with potential pathogens, and those pathogens are a risk to not just their pet, but anyone handling the pet as well. Ah, yes. Right. I mean, you think about this. Um, anytime anybody's listening to this program is cooking a chicken dinner or any other kind of meat uh, for dinner, right, what do, you, what do you know to do? Well, you wash your hands. You make sure that the utensils that touch the raw food aren't used to serve the prepared food later on, right? You take different... Uh, cautious uh, cautions and, and precautions and you try to be safe and you, and you wouldn't dream of, you know, feeding your child, for example, undercooked chicken or something like that. Um, and yet, you know, people potentially expose themselves and and their pets even to harmful bacteria. But here's again, where a, a person who's just thinking about animals in nature think, well, those animals that these wild animals are eating might also have bacteria. And indeed, they might. But they, it's I would have said, with some exceptions, that not necessarily all of them have those bacteria that we're worried about. So the prevalence of salmonella in a wild animal is extremely low, whereas the prevalence of salmonella in um, commercial meat is... Well, it varies from anything from 0% up to nearly 100%. And the the organism that is the most important in human health across the across the world is Campylobacter, and it causes diarrhea. Um, and it's present. I one recent study I saw it was 90% of chicken. Um, whereas some of the the um, methods to try and control salmonella in some foods have been successful, um, the prevalence of, salm of Campylobacter in foods remains really quite high. And so, whereas cooking, most almost all commercial food that's not designated as being raw um, is, is cooked. So the prevalence of, whenever it's been looked at, the prevalence of um, contamination of raw foods has been much, much higher. It's unacceptably higher, I would have said, um, whereas the prevalence in commercial cooked um, pet food is extremely low. Uh, you anticipated my next question. Exactly what I was going to ask is how common do... Uh, do you find that animals that are fed a regular commercially available nu nutritiously balanced diet uh, get some kind of infection that can be traced to that food it's seldom huh it's very well it's very rare um the, 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 all these foods are cooked but then after you a can remains sealed so it's going to be cooked in the can it's uh, if you break the can then it becomes it's going to become has the potential for becoming contaminated and that's why you shouldn't keep canned food after you've opened it or if it got a broken can or something like that dry food um because um it has it's cooked and then fat is sprayed on the outside so that manufacturers have to be very careful to keep the sprayer and the dryer on the outside. It's sterile. After that, um, 
then you have to make sure you don't um, contaminate in handling. And so the general recommendation is even if you're feeding a, a commercial cooked food, you should still be sensible about washing your hands and all that sort of thing. The risk is very low, but you should still be careful about that. And if it's sat out for any length of time, you should be equally, even more careful. So people choosing to feed or supplement something like, you know, meat to their pets, um, I mean, are there processes that or procedures that they can employ to m mitigate some of the risks? Well, just like cooking yourself, just if you were use, eating raw food yourself, there are some things you can do. Um, you know, you've you've talked about them to some extent already. You wash, you wash the surfaces in your hands. Um, you rinse the food really carefully before you you actually serve it. Um, but the the risk is still going to be there, and I can't emphasize this enough. That is a risk to the people handling the animals as well as the as well as the animals themselves. And there was a recent outbreak I was reading of Campylobacter, which was a result of um, a pet food. They came from a pet dog's puppies from from a, a pet um, store, right? Um, they, Campylobacter is much more likely to affect puppies than in adults and in dogs. They often don't show signs. Um, the, the young dogs may show signs, but it's uh, old dogs seem to not necessarily show signs. Having said that, there are more when they some studies have found that dogs with diarrhea are more likely to have Campylobacter than ones that don't. But um, many adult dogs do not show signs, even though they're infected with Campylobacter. But um, in this particular instance, people were getting sick because they handled their puppies with Campylobacter. And so, and that was traced back to this one pet store and the animals coming from that pet store. So it was 40 or 50 people, I think. So it was a fair number of people got infected from their puppies because the puppies had Campylobacter. And I bet some of them didn't, didn't have diarrhea. Are there added risks of infections from parasites in uncooked foods? Um, most definitely there are. Um, in fact, that's probably a situation where the wild animal is more at risk than the pet animal because the the wild animals um, tend to be not treated for parasites, whereas um, in, in um, birds and, and beef in feedlots are given parasiticides. So there's probably less of a risk um, from raw food from cooking, but they're still there. Um, and so um, it, it, there, I would be more concerned with feeding raw meat that has been caught in the wild. So a classic, there are two, well, three classic diseases that I would worry about. In Florida, the pigs of Florida have a disease called Algeskis disease. The wild pigs in Florida have a disease called Algeskis disease, which is called pseudorabies, and it it causes dogs to be incredibly itchy and things like that. And it's usually lethal, um, so you shouldn't be feeding raw pig to your dogs really in Florida. There's also a condition. There's a form of brucellosis, 
um, which is a nasty disease that affects your brain and things like that, causes relapsing fever in people. Um, and uh, that can cause, uh, we, there is Brucella suis in the pigs of Florida. So we, and that's one of the things we've learned at Florida that it's, we very rarely see brucellosis, but we, the place we do see it is for pigs, dogs that eat wild pigs. Um, then there's another horrible disease called um, uh, hydatid disease um, that can affect people, and um, and it's endemic in the uh, wild animals, moose and the like, in the northern United States, and um, it's a disease that is. Um, the dog is the intermediate host, so there is a there is a concern um, that the tapeworm that occurs in dogs, when it releases its eggs, those eggs if they're taken up by a person or by a sheep or something like that, or a, um, then they get um, these nasty cysts and they can occur in the brain and all sorts of places. It's a nasty disease. So there are some nasty parasitic diseases that we should be aware of, and in 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 um, New Zealand, for example, in places where they have a lot of sheep, um, it's against the law to feed raw lamb to 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 dogs because that's the only way to stop people getting infected with these horrible diseases. Um, there's some old studies out of Iceland before they stopped. They started treating the dogs with with to start for the tapeworm and stopped feeding raw um, lamb to the dogs, that, that the prevalence in people was, was really scary. Well, this is where we're going to take our next break, Dr. Hill. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFT. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Richard Hill, and we're talking about the risks of raw food diets for our pets, and we're going to be back with more right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. This is our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Richard Hill, and we're talking about the potential risks of raw food diets for our pets. And uh, I wonder, Dr. Hill, in, in the time that we have left, if we can uh, kind of talk a little bit about uh, the the idea of feeding our pets, you know, say more protein or more meat, that might seem to make sense because I think some people look at a food label like a commercially available dry food and see a lot of ingredients in there that they might not think about their pets eating in their more natural state, which is to say that like, you know, you look at the label and there's a lot of corn meal or something like that. And I don't know, I guess I don't tend to think of corn as being a staple of a dog's diet in the wild. Um, I mean, is that contributing to people's perceptions about what is the right things to, to, to feed their pets is, is um, what they conceive of as what the animal would naturally be eating in the wild? And, and is that contributing to these animals being 
switch to a more raw food diet that would include certainly more meat? It, it may play play a role. That's certainly a possibility. That in the wild, the dog is a an, an omnivore. Although it, the bulk of its diet will be from animals, if you see what I mean, they wouldn't be averse to eating other things um, if they became available to them. And um, the the fact remains is that they're physiologically capable of utilising the calories in starchy type foods um, and anybody who's seen a dog sort of eat or a cat eat grass you know they know that they need they do eat other sources of uh, nutrients um, that most of the fiber in a and dog or a cat's diet is going to be animal fiber from the, the fur and the, the hair and things like that. But that is important to the normal function of the colon of the dog. And they can also get that from eating uh, sort of uh, other types of food. Um, the cat is a purer carnivore. Um, and the main source of carbohydrate in their diet is probably what's in the intestines of the animals they eat. Um, uh, so the cat is a is more of a pure carnivore, and therefore um, it will usually eat less carbohydrate. But again, its physiology suggests that it is, means that it can can utilize the calories. Why do dry diets have carbohydrate in them, it is because to get the extruder to work properly, it needs a certain amount of carbohydrate to form those little kibbly bits that everybody uses. And so, and pretty much all dried food is now made that way. In the past, it was baked, um, but that's an expensive, difficult process. And so, um, it's it's more time consuming and, and expensive to do. So most commercial foods now are made with extruders. Um, if clients are, are worried about um, the carbohydrate content, there is a ready-made solution that there are a lot of canned diets contain very little carbohydrate in it. So a lot of the uh, canned cat foods contain very little carbohydrate. Um, uh, there is a way of telling how much carbohydrate in there is in there, but even those foods will contain some fiber because it's recognized that some fiber in the, in the colon is a good idea, um, and it also makes the food look a little bit better to the owner. So there will be some uh, carbohydrate sources in there, but some of them have almost none. Um, so there is a way of doing that. It's just hard to make a, a carbohydrate-free um, kibble diet using the extruders that are used to make the dry diets now. I wonder if we can take uh, just a short diversion here, Dr. Hill, if, to understand how it is that animals are able to know what nutrients they might be deficient on and tailor their eating to meet those needs. Because I'm thinking about a, a, a cat, uh, a kind of stray cat that used to live uh, in my neighborhood, and I would see him sometimes get hold of a wild animal like a squirrel or something. And he, and this is going to be horrifying to describe to listeners, so I'm sorry. He would, um, he'd start with the head and then he would just eat the head of the squirrel. And I would find this headless squirrel corpse later on. Uh, and was he, was he after something in particular? Was he, was he after that taurine that you were describing? 
Yeah, almost certainly, yes. How does he know? Well, there are some... <laughs> that's a good question. Mostly animals are not very good at choosing what they do. So it's more... It's going to be partly innate desire to eat the brain, I suspect. Um, there are some experiments which have shown that some animals are able to sort out a little bit better what, what they should eat. Um, and we talked already about the fact that they try and adjust the amount of protein, fat, and carbohydrate in their diet to max when it's been looked at. Um, it, they're trying to maximize their ability to reproduce. Um, so, um, and that was pretty much done in a range of species, even down to insects and things like that. And so, it looks as though there's a genetic um, suggestion that that need to adjust your food intake to meet those criteria. But when it's been looked at cats and dogs, they're not uh, they're not fantastically capable of sort of saying, I'm deficient in copper, I need to eat some copper. All right? Mm -hmm. They're not very good at doing that. But if that's there again, we only have limited data on that. So it is possible that they have a Tory need and they, they fulfill it. I don't I, I'm not aware of studies that have shown that. Yeah. All right, Dr. Hill, we've got just about a minute and a half left. I, I, I you know uh, fundamentally, what are what are we trying to say here today? My take home is it is it is a health risk to the pet and the owners from feeding raw food. If the owners that cons do want to do this for philosophical reasons, they should consider such as extra protein and fat. Then you should consider feeding a canned cooked diet. All right, it's a bit more expensive, but it's it's a good way of doing it. The alternative would be to read the FDA guidance uh, on, use, on feeding raw food, which is a very good summary of what you're, you're undertaking. And so if you go to the FDA website and look up pet foods, um, and they have a number of um, very good documents which discuss the, the merits and risks of feeding dog food, and particularly there's one pertaining to raw food. So I would strong. It's even got some guidance about how to handle the raw food if you really want to do this. All right. Well, Dr. Hill, thank you so much for joining me again. I always enjoy speaking with you uh, and, and learning about a whole lot of different stuff related to animal nutrition, and, and this was a, a really good topic. So thank you. Well, I've enjoyed presenting it to and if, if anybody's we're, we're happy to expound on that on a personal level if an animal the owner wants to do this on a, a personal basis Thank all right you. splendid richard hill is from the university of florida college of veterinary medicine i want to thank sarah carey the staff over there at the uf college of veterinary medicine for her help with the program and to you all for listening thank you so much i'm dana hill i hope you join me again next time for another episode of animal airwaves live bye-bye